Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of our Redeemer, the Lord Jesus. And we pray, Lord, that we would be one people, one of heart, one of mind, one in thought and vision. We pray that we would be a people united. We pray that this, would, this, this union would not be primarily through familial ties or through cultural preference, but we pray that this unity would be based upon the blood of your Son who has redeemed us. We pray that as we consider the work of Christ, we would be a people that would reject division and divisive people. We pray instead that such people, such individuals would come to repent, would come to, to understand the way in which you unite your people in the Lamb. We again pray all of this in the name of the Lamb who has redeemed us. Amen. So Emanuel Leidy's church was started as a German Reformed congregation in 1858. And I tell you this um, because while we no longer hold to the German part, I mean, we're, we're not all German, we don't speak German, we don't worship in German, we do still hold to the Reformed part. Now, my purpose this morning is not to um, spend an abundance of time talking about what it means to be reformed. Actually, if you are interested in that, uh, Dave Reich has been going through a, a, an Issues and Answers class uh, series on reformed faith, and um, I commend that series to you. It, it's uh, a wonderful picture of, of what we believe in and why we would believe it. Uh, but I begin today talking about the fact that we are reformed in our understanding um, because I want to point out an unfortunate stereotype. Now, all denominations have stereotypes, and I think you're only allowed to make fun of a denomination and its stereotype if you belong to it. Um, but one of the stereotypes of the reformed church, and I would say that the German reformed and the Presbyterians fit into this, is that they're cold, unfeeling, and argumentative. In fact, one of my friends who, um, again, keeping with you're only allowed to make fun of yourself, who is Presbyterian, uh, once told me a joke that he'd heard somewhere else, and it says, if you want to go to seminary, but you can't afford the tuition, say something wrong in front of a Calvinist and he'll lecture you for free. I think that's kind of unfortunate because I find that most of the Calvinists who fit that mold don't rightly understand their namesake, what John Calvin would have intended. But we understand the idea, right, that, that this Calvinist or this Reformed person is, is someone who's so thoroughly convinced that they're right that everybody else either must be ignorant or just willfully disobedient. Now, to speak in that such a way, that, that sounds rather harsh. And if it's true, it's, it's both ironic and it's unfortunate. 
And I say it's ironic because we recognize that the, the Reformed tradition has produced a number of documents. At our church, we are most familiar with the Heidelberg Catechism. And while they were written to, to set parameters for what Christians should, should understand, they were by and large meant to, to bring people together, not push them apart. But the reputation now is that that's exactly what they do. We see also that if this is true, it's unfortunate because this is not the purpose for which the church was made. This was not the hope that our Lord Jesus had for the church. We remember um, that Jesus in John chapter 17, right, which is often called his high priestly prayer, prays for his church. Uh, listen to what it says in John 17, 22. And again, this is Jesus praying to his heavenly father. He says, the glory which you, heavenly father, have given to me, I have given to them that they may be one just as we are one. That's a pretty amazing statement, right? That, that Jesus understands that he and the father are one. Right? We don't believe in two gods. We don't believe in three gods. We believe in one triune God. Two persons but one God. That, that even so, insofar as the Father and the Son are one and united in their thought, in their action, in their purpose, so too Jesus' followers are t supposed to be united, one. As we're looking at the end of the book of Titus, we see that Paul, in, in his final commands to Titus and to the Cretan people, give one primary command, that they would reject the factious man. That is to say that they're to, to reject the one who's causing division after a first and second warning. If we were to state it positively, you know, it's not that they're to reject division, it's that they're to pursue unity. They're to be one. They're to be united as the body of Christ. So I say, Emmanuel Lydie's church, as we live and as we minister in a fallen and broken world, let us be united. Let us, let us recognize that there is one living and true God, and so let us worship Him with one voice. Let us, let us act and make decisions with one mind. Let us not think more highly of ourselves than we ought, but let us see that others are more important than we are. And as we do so, may the Lord be glorified through us and serve, may, may this body serve as a witness to the amazing grace of the Lord Jesus to the culture. Yes. Now, as we, as we think about that command to Titus and, and the Cretans, we also need to look at the last words of the, the book. It's almost like a postscript. It, it's verses 12 through 15, and, and Paul doesn't seem to be giving any real command, any real push. You know, oh, one more thing. You, almost like Columbo saying just one more thing, right? No, the, uh, Paul is not doing that. Instead of that, instead of giving a command or, or one final exhortation, he gives, Timothy, or he gives Titus instructions. He gives them instructions specifically for how Titus is to deal with other gospel workers. Now, 
it's easy for us to dismiss this. It's easy for us to say, well, this isn't important to us. I mean, we recognize that Artemis and Tychicus are not coming. We don't have to receive them with grace. They died 2,000 years ago. So if they are coming, we know that the Lord has also returned. And whatever Paul is expecting us to, to do for them no longer applies. So I understand that it's easy for us to just kind of get to the end of the book and say, and some other stuff happened. But if that's what we do, we're kind of missing the forest for the trees. Paul, in these last verses, mentions four people. Artemis, Tychicus, Zenos, and Apollos. And he also mentions a place, Nicopolis. These are real people who existed in a real time and space. They're important for us to understand. They're important for us not to just read right over. The reason that they are important is that they serve to help us understand that Titus was a real person and that Paul really wrote to him. They, they help us understand that, that this is a historical, that this book fits in a historical time and space, that it's real. You know, we live in a culture that rejects the scriptures, and, and if it embraces them at best, it says that they're a bunch of made-up stories or, or morality tales, or they don't really have any basis in historical fact. But the truth is, Paul, writing to Titus, listing these people in this way, does root this letter in reality, in a real church, in a, in a real time and place. If Paul didn't write the letter, or as some would say, you know, it was written long after Paul died, putting such details in would just simply distract from the purpose of the document. Instead, what we see here is that the Holy Spirit, speaking through Paul, is helping us understand the reality, the truth of the Scriptures. Now, we could even think about this if it were um, uh, human literature, if there was some sort of mistake, right? Uh, we would understand that, that putting in such names and places serve as a, as a correction or a possible correction. L and let me explain. If I were to say in, in the next newsletter, write to you about the last time that, that uh, we went to Pekanjikum and how we were blessed by Joshua Jacobs to come on the trip, some of you would be scratching your head and you'd say, hey, wait, wait, wait a second, I've heard of Pekanjikum and I've heard of Josh Jacobs, but those two don't go together, do they? And the, the answer is you're right. Uh, Joshua Jacobs is a missionary we support in France and obviously France and Pekanjikum aren't the same place. And so clearly I've made a mistake. With regard to, 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 to Paul and Titus, we understand that by putting these people in particular places, Paul opens himself up, if we think in a worldly human terms, to being corrected. Somebody could say, no, 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 that's not where they were. Or no, 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 that person didn't do that or wasn't here or didn't you know, go with Paul. But we don't see that. In all of the record of, of the scripture that we have in the copies of Titus handed down through the church, through the ages of the church, and all of the commentaries that exist around it, they don't do that. They can't do that. Because the Holy Spirit, working through Paul, reveals his good and true word. 
So as we conclude the letter, and as we think about these, these people that we're not going to meet this side of heaven, don't just dismiss them. Instead, flip to the back of your, your Bible. You'll see a map. Figure out where Nicopolis is. And then as you're reading through other of Paul's epistles or, or the, the book of Acts, begin to think about where he's going and begin to think about who he's going with. And what you'll see is that helps you understand where the book of Titus fits in Paul's life. It's for our good. So we need to pay attention to these names. But as we think about this final section, we recognize that that. Paul, speaking to Titus, calls him first to speak with boldness, to proclaim these things, to, to, to authoritatively, right, to, 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 to speak about these things. These things, of course, being the verses that we looked at last week, but, but also we recognize that it is the themes that are working throughout the whole letter. Paul is calling Titus to boldly proclaim them. And what we understand here is, as we think about the Word of God, is that the Holy Spirit speaks through the Word of God. He reveals Himself through the Word of God. As the Word of God then is proclaimed, the Spirit continues to speak through it to those who hear. And continues to work in those that hear, helping them see the Lord Jesus and helping them come to understand who the Lord Jesus is. So that as the word of God continues to, to go forth, we see that the Spirit then enables us to, to then proclaim the word to the wider community. I think this is Paul's purpose to, in the book of Titus as a whole, from beginning to end. It's why he ends by saying, speak boldly. It's why he begins the letter by saying, what you need to do is establish elders in every city so that the church can be established against the backdrop of an evil, unbelieving culture. Okay? If we were to think about this in terms of a picture, what we might think about is a large stone dropped into the middle of a pond. Right? We see the, the ripples go out and go out and go out. And it's the Holy Spirit speaking through the Word of God, through the pastor, to the people, through the people, to the wider community, and so on. And it just continues. And Paul, as he's concluding his letter one more time, reminds Titus to be bold. And in this, I think there's profound instruction for us today. You know, we are called to boldly proclaim the truths of the Scripture. This does not necessarily mean that we are to, to um, stand on street corners and, and preach to whoever passes us. Uh, it could very well be in conversation. It could very well be as we uh, just are sharing life or a meal or, or whatever time of fellowship that we talk one to one another about the gospel, about, about what the Lord Jesus has done. But we also communicate to those in the sur surrounding area. We might then consider how the Lord has made us, how the Lord has redeemed us, and in doing so, we understand how he very well is equipping us to proclaim his word to those around us. 
Now, the last of Paul's kind of moral or ethical commands uh, we see given in verses 10 and 11. I'll, I'll reread them. Paul says here that Titus and the Cretan church are to reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. Now, first, we need to, to understand, and, and I say this speaking to myself. I remember the first time I was reading through this passage as a younger child and, and going and talking to my parents and saying, isn't it a good thing to, like, know facts and love facts and to have knowledge? Because I thought a factious person was someone who just knew stuff. Well, that was a good thing, right? In the same way, we once drove by the Christian science uh, building, and I said, Mom, I want to be a Christian scientist when I grew up. Or, not realizing that they weren't Christian or a scientist, because that's what I... I mean, that's what I thought it was. Um, but, but what we understand here is that a factious man is, is a man who pursues factions. Not fractions, but factions. Parts, pieces. He breaks things apart. By his words and by his deeds, he doesn't seek to bring together, but he seeks to separate. The positive way to say this is that we are to seek unity. Right? That we're to seek to be one. Not, you know, we're to reject the factious man. We're to be one. And we read in Psalm 133 a wonderful description of the kind of the perfection that results of unity. The descriptions are, are evocative. It, it's, you know, the psalmist there says that the unity of brothers is like precious oil going down the head or going down the, the beard and onto the edge of the robes. We understand that, you know, that oil is used in the, the New and Old Testament in a number of ways, but it was nearly always used to, to help heal and to help set apart. Well, you do that in part because it's precious. So, you know, it's the sort of thing where it's kind of, you know, a dab will do. But that's not what Psalm 133 describes. The preciousness of unity amongst brothers and sisters in Christ is like oil being poured out, but not just a little bit. Being poured out so that it covers all of you, right? That's the preciousness. It's like life-giving dew that refreshes each and every morning. Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians, describes it a little bit differently. He says in, in chapter 4, verses 4 through 6, See if you can figure out the word that's repeated. There is one body, there is one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father, of all, uh, um, who is of all, who is over all, and through all, and in all. One. We're called to be one. I guess I'm, I'm hoping that, that Paul's words here are sufficient to help us understand the picture of unity that is expected of God's people. We are to be not just God's people, we are to be the body of Christ. We're to be people that are marked by a love for one another, a care for one another, which is visible to the external community. This is what uh, Jesus says in John 13, 34, and 35. You know, by your love for one another, 
all will know that you are mine. But we recognize that that's not always the case. We recognize that, that there are times and seasons uh, within the church, within Israel, where God's people didn't pursue unity. We saw an, an account of this in Numbers 16. There we see the rebellion of Korah. Um, it's Korah and, and two other families, Dathan and Abiram, and they're tired of Moses calling the shots. Now, it's easy to, to sort of understand this. They're in the middle of wandering in the desert until they all die. Boy, that's encouraging. Uh, but we also recognize that the reason that they're wandering in the desert until they all die is their own sinful fault. But here Moses and Aaron have been leading them. But these three are grumbling, and they're saying that, that this is not right. And so they gather some of the, the leaders of the congregation, and they go to, to Moses, and they say, listen, they probably don't say bud, but we, we could say, listen, bud, we're all God's people. And God's, God's presence is here. We can all know what we are to do. We can all figure this out. Why are you being exalted over us? Why are you exalting yourself over us? Now, even in that, we recognize that they don't understand what's going on. Not in, not in reality. You know, Hebrews 5, as it talks about Jesus, our, our faithful high priest, talks about how none of the high priests chose the honor for themselves, but they were called by God. Aaron was called by God. He was God's chosen man for the, the hour. But these people are, are working and they are thinking that this is not the way it's to be. This is not how we are to proceed. So what does Moses do? He says, all right, we'll go to the Lord. He, you know, we have these fire pans um, which... You know, basically a container that holds burning coals that you can put incense on in an act of worship. And he says, you're going to bring your fire pans. We're going to bring our fire pans. We're all going to go to the Lord and he's going to pick which one. And so that's what they do. And, and the next day they come together. And this is kind of critical. We see that it's no longer 250 people. We see that it's no longer just three families. Instead, what we see is that the entire congregation is there against Moses and Aaron. What's happened? Well, Korah and Dathan and Abiram have gone around and they've said, listen, this is what we're going to do. We're going to go and we've already challenged Moses and so we're, we're going to, to it, you know, it's tomorrow at, at high noon is what it feels like. And, and we're going to say, we've had enough. So join us, come with us, side with us. And they all do. In doing so, they reject the one that the Lord has appointed. In doing so, they've, they've divided the congregation. And so the Lord's first response is to say, Moses and Aaron, you, you step aside right over here. I'm going to show you what I think about this. And he's going to kill them all. This is not the only time that the Lord says he's going to restart Israel with Moses. But Moses says, no, 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 Lord, don't do that. Moses, they, they, they fall on their face and they say, no, let, let's not hold the, the entire congregation. 
and guilt for the, the actions of this one person. So then the Lord says, all right, all of Israel stand apart from these people. And Mo Moses issues a proclamation. And he says, listen, if these guys live a long and happy life and all goes well with them, then you know I'm in the wrong. But if something happens to them, you know I was right. And in the providential care of the Lord, by the Holy Spirit working in Moses, he, he picks something rather unusual. You know, in our, in our day, we would say, you know, bolts of lightning or something coming from the, the heavens. That's not what Moses picks. He says, if, if I'm right, then the, the ground's going to open up and swallow them whole. And of course, that's what happens. How do we respond to this? I mean, we recognize that it's not a one-to-one -one correspondence. Moses is no longer here. Aaron is no longer here. We understand that our faithful high priest, the Lord Jesus, is, is present. Though he is seated at the right hand of God, he is present by his spirit in us. Certainly, we understand that if we are to reject the, the Lord Jesus as a high priest, there is no hope for us. Whether we're swallowed up into the ground or whether we, we um, live out our days, we recognize that if we're apart from Jesus, we have no, no righteousness. We have no good standing. We have no hope. We also recognize that, that in all of this discussion... Moses doesn't say to, to Korah, well, you know, you're not really holy. You're not really, uh, you know, you're, you're not a, this isn't a royal nation. And as we would look at the scriptures, we would see that, that we all, as God's people, are a part of a royal priesthood. So, so you know, we think, does that mean that we just can ignore this? Or, or how, how do we apply this? And I'll, I'll, I'll say today, June 13th, we have two direct applications for Lydie's church that we could, we could put into place, that we could think through and apply to our lives. The first is that we need to remember that we are, yes, called as individuals by the Lord Jesus and redeemed as individuals by the, the blood of the Lamb, is the blood who regenerates us. But we also need to remember that the Lord does work through people. The people he calls. We see this in the Apostle Paul, whom the Lord called. It was a rather difficult calling. You know, he, he appears to him, he strikes him blind, and he says, you know, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? That, that's amazing and, and wonderful, also somewhat awful. But the real awful part of that is what he says to Ananias. Remember, Ananias didn't want to help Paul, and the Lord said, no, 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 Ananias, I've chosen this man to show how much he must suffer for me. Right? But we understand nonetheless that the Lord called Paul and, and put him in a special role. In the same way, he, he's calling faithful men to serve as, as officers of the church, elders and deacons. We understand that he's, he's called Titus to this role to some degree. And, and we need to recognize that the Lord is the one who's calling people to serve. So that means that while it is true we are a royal priesthood, it, it is true that we can you know, directly go to the Lord in ways that Korah could have only dreamed about, 
we also still operate within the structures that the Lord has put in place. Again, we think of the stone dropping into the water. And we think of the Spirit speaking through the Word of God, through the preached Word of God, to the people and beyond. And that's a, a picture of the purpose and, and unity, the unity of action that the church is to have. The second application flows directly from that. Here, we are eagerly looking for and anticipating a senior pastor. We're praying that the Lord would make his candidate known to us. In this, we recognize that, that you know, we all have different opinions. Um, strangely enough, the only thing we really have in common is that we're all sinners. <laughs> the only thing that we, we have in common is that, that as we come to the Lord, we do so because we're sinners, but sinners who have been redeemed by the Lord Jesus. So we recognize that you know, whoever the Lord calls to Lydie's church will make decisions that we don't like. But we're called to be people marked by unity and love for one another, not marked by division and dissension. How do we do that? I mean, we recognize, like I said, that, you know, we, we're all sinful, we're all sinners, we're all fallen short of the glory of God. How in the world can we seek to, to follow the Lord? How can we be united? How can we pursue unity with our brothers and sisters? Well, first we recognize that we do so because of the power of the outpoured Holy Spirit. We do so recognizing that God's Spirit works within us and enables us to follow the Lord. So that when the Lord says, by your love for one another, we are now enabled to love one another. Paul, again, is helpful here in his letter to the Philippians when he writes, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. As we think of Korah and his buddies, uh, we recognize that they didn't fit that. That they thought of themselves more highly than they should. That they didn't recognize that the Lord had called Moses and Aaron for specific tasks, and so they didn't want to listen to him. We ought not follow their path. Rather, we should look and see what the Lord has done in us by Christ and what the Lord enables us to do by His Spirit, that is to say, deal gently and humbly with one another. Love one another. Care for one another. Now, how do we do that? Well, fundamentally, we have to be present in one another's lives. And we look at a room this, uh, this large, and if we were to set up some weird schedule uh, in the narthex that, that had it where, you know, everyone in the congregation shared a meal with every other person in the congregation, you know, on Sunday afternoons, what we would re likely realize is that we would probably run out of Sunday afternoons before we actually managed to have everybody meet with everybody. We understand that, that you know, some things aren't feasible. We have natural friends and groups that we, we congregate to and with. But nonetheless, we recognize that we are to be one people. We're to be with one another. Spending time with one another. Sharing a meal with one another. 
It's why we, we hope and pray that we will restart fellowship lunches. It's why this Friday, in part, we're going to have a, a fellowship meal where we can spend some time with one another, get to know one another a little better, and learn about what it means to follow the Lord Jesus. As we get to know people, we, we understand their likes, their dislikes. We understand who the Lord has called them to be and, and how the Lord has equipped them for life and ministry. And, and we can show them honor and respect. We can be humble to them, deferring to them where appropriate. It's part of the reason why we gather for worship. It's part of the reason why it's so important to be present if we can physically. Now, we understand that there are times and circumstances where we can't. We understand that there are, are reasons, whether physical or otherwise, where we're not able to gather together. But it's why it's been so amazing as we've uh, continued to exit this pandemic time as people come back to worship. The flood of emotions that are present because we understand that we're to be together, worshiping the Lord with one voice. So in all of this, let us reject division. Let us reject the factious one. Instead, let us seek unity. Let us seek to be united by the blood of the Lord Jesus. As believers who love one another and care for one another. And may it be present in the degree that it is tangible palpable to those around us. That they can't help but wonder, man, there's something really weird, kind of nice, but really weird about that person. He cares for me. He wants to know what's going on, how I'm to live my life. Not in, a, in, the, in the stuffy sort of way, but, but he, he wants to, to communicate the love of the Lord Jesus. In so doing, as we seek to properly be the bride of Christ, the, the, the body of Christ, we serve as a testimony of God's great redeeming power to move dead sinners to living followers by the power of His Spirit. That is the only antidote I know to our materialistic culture, our, our, our sinful, unbelieving culture. The glory of the Lord displayed through his people. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you again in the name of the Lord Jesus, and we pray, Lord, that we would be a people marked by unity. We pray that you, by your Spirit, would give us a clear picture of of your purposes for us, that you would give us a, a, a clear um, understanding of, of who we are to be and how we are to live in this world that is, is running far from you. We pray, Lord, uh, for all of the aspects of Lydie's church, that, that our hearts would beat as one, that our minds would, would, would think as one, not in, in a strange group think, but as men and women earnestly seeking after you. Lord, we pray that you would accomplish this in the only way we know how, by the power of your Spirit. Amen.